Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Future in Review podcast, where we talk with leaders in tech, investment, and business about the future of technology and the global economy. I'm your host, Barrett Anderson, the COO of Future in Review, which The Economist has called the best technology conference in the world. And I'm here today with Art Kleiner, who has been to Future in Review many times um, and is the co-author of The AI Dilemma, which is a book about the ethics of artificial intelligence and how to think about them as a society as we move forward with continuing to build uh, the future of AI. Um, he's also the editor at Kleiner Powell International, and he is on the faculty at NYU's Tisch School. So Art, great to see you again. It's great. wonderful to be back in this virtual space with you. I wanted to start off by talking about a concept that you focus on in your book, which is the idea of the four logics of power. I found this to be like a very helpful intellectual framework for simplifying a lot of the debate that people tend to have about artificial intelligence. A lot of the ethical questions that tend to come up about artificial intelligence really boil down to these kind of four power structures. And it's useful to have them out in the open, I think. So I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling our audience a little bit more about those. What are the four? logics of power. And just to shout out, Juliet Powell, co-author, whose this book is based on a lot of her research, actually came up with this framework. And it's it was an effort to answer the question, if we want responsible AI, if we want responsible technology in general, who's the we? And right. who makes the decisions that actually shape where it's going? And it turns out that there are at least four kind of locuses of logic that determine the way that this technology unfolds or any technology unfolds. And the most obvious one is business, right? The, the idea that business leaders, they want long-term, long-term profits, long-term survival of the business. They want all the things that go with it and they need to keep cash flow going. And in a highly competitive business, like most AI businesses, they feel constant pressure, not just from shareholders, but from competitors and from their, uh, you know, the people they sell to and their reputation, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's often a kind of race to the bottom in terms of responsibility that just comes from the logic that we need to get as much out the door as possible to keep growing and building what we have. And I, I, when you say race to the bottom, I find that to be a, an amusing phrase because I think we just watched that happen, right, with ChatGPT and the yeah. rollout of ChatGPT which was get it out as soon as possible. Oh, it's released. Suddenly every company is pushing it out there, pushing it out there. And we're finding all these yeah. issues that we actually, the open AI team, I think could have seen coming or probably did see coming. You just froze, Garrett. <laughs> but from a business perspective, we're they got pushed out anyways. It's interesting because the word hallucination didn't really come up until after all these companies started doing their rapid releases. Mm -hmm. We hadn't heard that. And then all of a sudden, what are these, what are the systems making up? What are the loose facts and how do we check them? And all that suddenly became relevant. And most of the companies, or at least a lot of them, had been delaying what they were going to release just because they wanted to be sure that they could stand behind it. When ChatGPT comes out, when OpenAI says we're going to do rapid releases, all of that, you well, can't really justify that from the yeah. business logic. So that's the first logic. Okay. And some people think it's the only logic, but that's actually true of all four of these. The second... <laughs> it is interesting, though, because I think one of the things that's different about the business logic as opposed to the other logics is that they have this like high level of control 
over the actual decision making, right? Because they are releasing and building the product, they have a level of control that some of these other spheres you're about to talk about don't have yet. Anyways, we can come back to that in a second. Well, I keep, let's, so keep let's, going. Okay, so I'll do the other. We want to come back to control. It's Control mm-hmm. is really complicated when it comes to AI and to business. So the engineering logic, software engineers are not really certified the same way that a physician is or even a mechanical engineer is. They're not liable in the same way that if a bridge collapses, they go back to the architect and the mechanical engineer. But they have an ethic, right? They want the code to be elegant. They want it to work. They know what is good code and bad code. And in terms of responsibility, that's not their job. They can make it their job, but that becomes a choice that they make. And in the meantime, their job is turning in what their client or their employer demands and doing it in a way that they can hold their head up with the rest of the software engineering community. So they, it's, it's good code, it's beautiful, but responsibility is often delegated to the risk department or the PR department. Right. And that's where it should be. That's where the experts are. They're not experts or they don't think they are. And yet in writing the book, one of the reasons we wrote the book is that Juliet knew a number of people in the software industry who were talking about what they were doing and suddenly they would say, my God, I didn't realize. Or as they were talking, they would come to terms with the fact that they had created a system that was biased in some way or that, or they were high, you know, they were not, their employers asked them, don't tell us about this kind of risky behavior because we don't want to know about it because we might be liable. And something that didn't seem like it was their problem then became their problem. So that's the engineering perspective. It's very much a craft perspective. And it's logical. It makes sense. And then there's the government perspective, which is, you know, we are responsible for the way that the world works. (laughs) Whether or not we know what to do, we need to accept the responsibility and hold others accountable. One of our original titles for the book was Who Watches the Watch Robots? (laughs) Was based on, you know, juvenile, but it was essentially the government has to step in. They are responsible for stepping in. And we're now seeing the European Union being the most obvious of, of many governments that are saying, nobody else is regulating AI. There are real risks here. We've got to do it. And then are we going to be responsible in the way we do it? becomes a, a kind of an open question. With AI, it's a visible question. People can see what governments are doing and, and what they're saying. So the government logic is, um, or at least a lot of it, not, not all of it. But, you know, it's, so it's partly the government logic partly is based on what they do with the tools. And it's based on, you know, on, it's kind of this underlying overarching power and how they're going to use it. Think the-, the other part of the government logic, which is interesting to me, is how, because the government itself, like when you say the government, every government, you know, of every country in the world has its own kind of competitive landscape. And so, right. especially when it comes to artificial intelligence and its significance in weapon systems and protection of, of people, it is also 
from a government perspective, a competitive advantage. And so I think to talk, to have an, an, a really un, like powerful conversation about that, you have to be real about the fact that the government incentives and the corporate incentives may not be actually that different in some ways. They are different in terms of the people involved mm -hmm. and they play out differently. For instance, we tell the story of uh, Stanislav Petrov, who was the Russian, the Soviet Air Force official who noted that there were five, five intercontinental ballistic missiles coming in from the United States and said, this, I have this gut feel that isn't really five missiles. Right. It's a, a glitch in the system. And he sent up the word that it's a glitch in the system. Soviet Union didn't retaliate. It turned out it was a glitch. And we are all here still today. Juliet and I were talking about this and we wanted to tell the story. And I said, no government is going to be that careless that they're going to let AI oversee nuclear weapons without some human being in the loop who, who would have a gut feel. And then we asked a couple of physicists and we found out that some of them nuclear physicists are really worried about this, the ones we talked to, because in fact, there's this competitive advantage. And if you have a system that will respond faster than somebody else's system, you can tell yourself, I am not going to be vulnerable. Right. And you, you know, so that, I mean, that comes back to control. The government idea of operations and control is you know, we, we know many, many wonderful, very responsible, very cautious people in government, and yet there's always a possibility. So it's government watching everybody else, watching business and watching themselves and watching each other. Um, and that's the third logic. Kind All right, of which brings us to, to the fourth logic, which I think is, is an interesting one because it gets a lot of attention, but it, it has relatively a different different i'll say different power dynamics than the other than the other logics it's a communications dynamic and it's a power over one's own choices mm -hmm. so this is the dynamic of people like meredith whitaker and tim mcgebrew and others who have worked at big tech and seen the consequences and stand and become social justice activists with an eye towards the harm that ai can do and you know, the, the track record for self-regulation by companies is not terrific. Yeah, low. <laughs> the, track record, the track record is we'll put someone in place, they'll raise the things, and then we'll fire them. Right. Or force them to walk out. Or right. create conditions under which they walk out. Right, exactly. And yeah. so then they, they go to a university and start an institute or start a project and, and go public with what mm -hmm. they know. One of the reasons we're having so many discussions this year is that so many engineers have moved to some extent into social justice activism. And a keen awareness is interesting because in so many of the cases, the egregious cases, there is a vulnerable population who is hurt more than others. Yeah. So for instance, we talk about the, um, the Netherlands um, child benefits case. Do you know about that one? Yes, I have heard about this. Okay. So, but, but please, I don't, I don't know that our, that our audience has. So, so sh please share it again. So the, in starting around 2007, the tax office of the Netherlands decided they were going to use predictive analytics to decide who was likely to be a fraud. Uh, you know, 
getting child welfare benefits when they didn't deserve them. And they didn't have a check on it or enough of a check. And they uh, ended up wrongly accusing 26,000 people of this and forcing them to return the money. And the bias was, we know now the bias was explicitly against immigrants, particularly immigrants from Turkey and Morocco. It was against single parents, which usually means single mothers. And it was also against people who held two jobs. And, you know, and so that sounds that sounds like the like, you know, I mean, maybe not the Turkey and Morocco part, but like the rest of it is like, yeah, those are the people that need support and right. <laughs> raising their children. <laughs> well, they're the ones who are going to steal, you know, and, and it mm -hmm. is the perennial thing of predictive analytics. It's mistaking correlation for causation in this kind of way that never gets questioned. And so people, you know, families broke up, people lost their homes, people went to jail. 1,500 children were separated forcibly from their parents. Oh, my God. And it's still, you know, compensation, the debate over how to compensate them is still going on. And it's, you know, it's now 17 years later. Wow. So, yeah. So, so that's just, and, and, and that's the Netherlands, right? Right. I mean, like one of the countries so, you think this is like so enlightened a country. So, so this brings me to, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I think we would be, we would be remiss in assuming that, you know, Northern Europe has, has a lot of more benevolent social issues, but they also certainly have a lot of struggles with racial issues and racism and, um, so it's not super surprising that that there would be that kind of bias built into their data. Um, one, but this brings me to a question that I that I want to ask you, which is knowing what you've written this book, you've done all of this research with with Juliet and your co-author about the ethics of of artificial intelligence and its applications. Knowing what you know about the state of the art in artificial intelligence itself. What would you consider the most unethical applications of artificial intelligence well, that you're seeing today that are still in place? Ethical is kind of a moral judgment. And I, I think there's two ways to do it. One is to say, what are the highest risk issues? And the other way to do it is what are the careless applications Mm -hmm. Where we, you know, there may be unintended consequences and people are just going ahead without, you know, thinking about it. And the problem with the second one you know, is because carelessness is not obvious until something happens. Right, right. <laughs> so, but um, are, there, are there spaces that you're seeing today that you're looking at and thinking, you know, either because of risk or because of the way that they've been implemented um, or because of, you know, just a lack of foresight. Mm, this is going to go, this has a tendency to go really poorly. When, so as a general rule of thumb, a red flag, when you see a company saying, we don't want to know about that detail because we may be held liable for it. Don't tell us to the people working on the AI system. That's a pretty big red flag. And that happens, you know, surprisingly often. You would think it wouldn't happen at all. But, you mm -hmm. know, one of the stories we tell is about um, people who are developing an AI system to kind of scrub out, um, 
you know, noxious material from, you know, one of these things, you know, angry, you know, um, racist and, uh, and, and, and predatory remarks from a website. And they, uh, the, the story involves somebody who was an engineer who led a team of people doing this. Mm-hmm. And they, perhaps from, perhaps from a social network. Uh, perhaps from a social network. We you actually could, could, one could see it potentially being applied. You, you, I'll say the name so you don't have to. Facebook, TikTok, uh, X. Well, actually, this was a small player, from what I gather, and I okay. actually, on purpose, never knew the name of it. Okay. Because this was somebody was trying to create, you know, a little texture for people who may not be wow. reading through your your subtext here. We're not. Well, I'm not saying that this necessarily is about any of those companies, but this is a problem that all of those companies have. They all have it, and they all, you know, many of them have coped by saying, "We're going to draw a boundary around this group that is looking for problems, so that the knowledge of that problem does not go any further." Mm-hmm. And of course, when the knowledge of the problem doesn't go any further, then the ability to fix the problem, you know, the ability to apply AI tools, for example, or to, um, you know, put in systems in place that, uh, that step back against the people who are posting these things is limited. Right. So, you know, going into more detail would probably be a rabbit hole of sorts, but, but the, that to me, you know, the idea that, we are deliberately not going to take responsibility is because we never had to before. We never had with any of these, um, with any of these uh, other technologies that are, you know, we didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, a der- an oil derrick um, spilling oil all over the Gulf because our maintenance was so good. You know, so in a sense, the, the, the egregious part is it doesn't really have much to do with the AI. It has to do with the, um, delusional approach that corporate leaders often take. Um, you know, BP thought it was one of the most careful companies in the world. I was at a meeting at BP shortly before that disaster where I was sit- I was squatting on the arm of a couch and they said, please don't do that. That's not safe. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> it's just very fun. And I was at PwC for a long time. I saw a lot of corporate stuff. But the when I, um, after we finished the book and I was thinking about how would I talk about it, one of the things that, um, I have three kids mm-hmm. and I think my experience is fairly typical. They're all in their twenties now. When my oldest daughter was an infant, I thought, I've got this. I'm going to be a great dad. I know just what to do. She's sleeping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then. Her two sisters came along and she got older and I suddenly realized I didn't know nearly what I had to know. That's where we all are. That's where humanity is right now with AI. It was so small and quiet and now it's growing so fast and it's getting into trouble and we're all responsible and we don't know what we're doing. In that sense, you know, the call for a six month moratorium on research was a kind of noble gesture right if miss if if perhaps unrealistic well <laughs> it never you know it hasn't but, happened. But, you know it did have it did have the i think the intended effect if you know if perhaps the intended effect was not actually a six-month moratorium on the research but right. 
actually to help draw attention to how important this question is, right? Um, and I think it 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 has had that effect in some in in a lot of ways. Partly, it was that statement, and a mm-hmm. lot of it is AI itself. You know, the fact that you have to program. So, for instance, you know, a self-driving car in you know the trolley problem. You have to tell the self-driving car in advance what do you do when you get into trouble. Right. We don't do that. Nobody's telling a human driver in advance. You know, if you're at a crosswalk and you have to you know, kill a lady or a gentleman, who do you kill? You know, you decide. Um, We trust humans in a way because we know that AI is automated in ways that can't be um, sort of predicted in advance. The actual predictiveness can't be predicted. And therefore, we have to create rules. And that means we have to turn our, you know, we, all of us together, whoever cares, the fact that we have to create rules turns turns our attention back on ourselves and we suddenly become more aware of all of the flying by the seat of the pants that people do. Right. So we have just a couple of minutes left in this podcast. Um, And I want to make sure we've talked a lot about kind of like the architecture behind what's going on, but I want to make sure one of the things that I love about your book so much is that you do a fantastic job of talking very specifically about the kinds of things that we need to do to be more ethical in our use and deployment of AI. Um, and I'm wondering if we can perhaps just um, focus on a couple of those right now. So you've got, you know, be intentional about risk to humans, right. open the closed box, right. reclaim data rights for people, Confront and question bias. And then a couple, three more, three more uh, principles that are really focused on how we organize society and, and organizations, which would be holding stakeholders accountable, favor loosely coupled systems and embrace creative fiction. So I think I want to, focus for a second about the be intentional about risk to humans, because that one is particularly hard. It's it's very nuanced, right? What does that mean to you? And how did you and Juliet think about writing about that? We originally called the chapter do no harm. Mm-hmm. And we were thinking of the hypocrite. I was thinking of the Hippocratic oath. Right. And we realized or Juliet realized, and then I realized that doesn't apply. There is always risk. In there will any- always be harm of some kind, I think is what, yeah. yeah. So which, it, and it is even harm. There was always the possibility of harm. Right. And, and it isn't so much you think about the probabilities, but you think about, um, as you would in a scenario, what would have to happen for there to be real harm and what would have to happen to prevent harm? And then the intentional part is, what, am, what role am I going to play? In this, how am I going to keep this from, you know, causing harm? And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be completely prescient, but I'm going to devote resources to making sure that if something starts to happen, that's really problematic, like groups of people being denied benefits because of, you know, the fact that they're immigrants or they're single parents. I'm going to be paying attention 
and I'm going to step in. I'm not going to say that's not my responsibility. That's the algorithm. Um, she, you know, Sheena Iyengar at Columbia said, you know, studies choice and we drew on her stuff. And, you know, basically, you know, you have a real choice when it's difficult. Right. <laughs> if it's an easy choice. It's not a choice. You know, I've had, so, so I want to talk to this. A lot of what you're describing is, is something that applies to folks who are working in the AI space, who are building artificial intelligence or working on artificially intelligent powered products themselves. And this is a conversation that I've actually had many times with many people who work for tech companies, right? So like there is a large portion of people who work for tech companies in those roles who do so because of the, because they do not have an economic fallback, right? It's right. a high paying job. They're intelligent people. They really, you know, have their shit together and uh, they're doing that job because they don't have institutional wealth. They don't, you know, they're, they don't, they're looking for a way to provide security for themselves and their families. And so I think there's this really interesting tension in the tech world between the rest of society that's like, well, why are they doing that? Why don't they, 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 why can't they bring more? And the real reality of being in one of those roles and maybe knowing that you should be doing that or bringing that lens, but feeling like you can't because there is a history of people who bring that lens being fired or replaced really quickly, right? There is a need for job security. Like many of those people, you know, are on visas where they can't, if they get fired, they lose not only their job, but their ability to stay in the United States. And so that is a really interesting kind of little ecosystem in there that I don't think there's a, a, a yet, a, I guess, strong enough conversation around what that's like and how to do that. Oh man. So you've opened the door. I'm going to try to be brief, but this is something I've thought about for a really long time, lived, worked with people on, um, and flip it the other way. Like suppose you're running an, uh, a responsible company and you want everybody who comes there to, you know, really apply some, you know, some thoughtfulness about mm -hmm. the consequences. So you're asking them to take on a Zen attitude or a self-aware attitude. And is it fair for you to demand that level of enlightenment from the people who are just coming there to earn a living? Right. There's a whole set of nuances around if AI is really a mirror to our behavior, you know, most people, when they work in a job, they constrain all the rough edges of their behavior. They reserve that for their families <laughs> or, their, or for, you know, when they act out, but they don't act out at work because they don't last. Right they act out at work. So now we're sort of saying, okay, you're always at work. You're always under observation. You've always got your personal data and you've always got this, you know, this mechanical toddler who is going to do, you know, so you now have to be careful in a way that we don't typically ask ourselves to be careful. And in a way that's the human ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, a, a certain type of uh, spiritual person or ethical person, ethically minded person might say, well, that's the way it should be all along. I kind of, 
I, uh, part of me does not want to give up carelessness. You know, I, I, I sort of, I, I sometimes feel like I should carry a flag for carelessness, except that. Well, I think, I think there's a difference between carelessness and um, the like expectation that those who are hired, for example, like if you're, if you're looking at a construction company and the construction company keeps building houses that fall down. Yeah. You're not going to hold the individual carpenters responsible for that, right? You're going to hold the com company itself responsible for that. And you're, the company itself is who should bear the legal liability, in my opinion, of the fact that their houses keep falling, falling down. And then either replace, it's their job to figure out what to do about that. But the liability in that case, I feel like there's a, there's this interesting kind of conundrum where it's like, that you're bringing up, which is should those people be responsible for, for having to think about having that added kind of burden? And well, you know, with FTX, we're, we're not holding the company responsible. We're holding Sam Bankman Freed responsible. Right. You know, we're not holding, we're hold, we held Bernie Madoff responsible. We didn't hold his like little, you know, and, and with Enron, we hold Ken Lay responsible. Now there are people up and down the line. There are a lot of people who are just doing their job at Enron and probably didn't know about all of the um all all the mess but on some level yeah it kind of um you're saying we need some collective responsibility i think it starts with the inner sense of responsibility i think on some level look this may be a rite of passage for um technology uh, and its people. This may turn out to be a kind of uh, passage into maturity for people who have big toys that do big things. And we don't know yet. It may be that AI will solve all the problems that we're talking about just in itself, but it doesn't seem like it. And yeah. it doesn't seem, and, and it also doesn't seem like any single individual that I've noticed has a real handle. Typically when things like this get solved, they get solved by things like insurance industries. Right, where where the, the actual bottom line comes into play, right? And, but you know, you know people who work, or if you know people who work in the insurance business doing this kind of thing, they're thinking about this stuff all the time. They're right. thinking, they might be thinking about it in a careless way, like how am I going to get my bonus? But they're also thinking, Next year, if we keep insuring this beachfront property, there won't be a bonus. Right. And with AI, next year, if we get a, you know. Keep getting lambasted for being biased in who we're policing or funding or providing medical care to, you name it, maybe there won't be a. There'll be real damages, Dominion style. Uh, damages that wasn't AI, but it's in a way the technology is the least part of it. The big part of it is, do you care about things that affect other people? This has been a fantastic conversation. I think that's a perfect place for us to end things because when it comes right down to it, the AI is depending on human judgments and human analysis, and, and I, that is a very good concise way of thinking about the state of AI right now, I think. It all depends on how you feel about people. <laughs> and which people? Not all people are the same. Everyone has different value systems. 
which is perhaps the next the topic of our next podcast on for conversation. If there's room to come back, it would be terrific. Anyway, this is a real this is really fun. Thank you so much for joining us. I really and everyone will put a link to the AI dilemma if you're interested uh, in artificial intelligence. I highly recommend this book. I've done a lot of work and research into how to think about artificial intelligence, how to regulate it, and I I really feel like you and Juliet have done a fantastic job of Thank laying you. things out in a really clear and and concise and substantive way which thank you for your work thank you for everything that uh, you're doing and fire and all the stuff so it's great this is a great conversation thank you thanks art